inside the recording studio. My name is Jody Whitesides, and with me is, as always, Mr. Chris Hellstrom. How are you today, Chris? I'm doing very well, Jody. How about yourself? I'm getting my day going. So I'm yeah. doing all right, yeah. Cool, cool. What do you got going on for today? This. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, fair podcast. enough. Let's get going. <laughs> yes, let's just jump right in. We're talking about what today? We're talking about the Fairchild Compressor, Ooh. classic piece of kit. Yes. We will talk primarily, I, I guess, about the 670, but we will mention the 660, I suppose, as well. But uh, why, yeah. why wouldn't you? I mean, it's the aggressive little brother of the so, 670. Of sorts. Yeah. Yeah. At least the the mono version of of the aggressive little brother. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is the mono version. But before we get too far into that, tell us a little yeah. bit about the history. How did it start? What do you know? What I know is that it was started by a gentleman called Rain Norma, who was looking for as often with these pieces of gear in, in the broadcast industry, where control looking for control of peaks as it were, and decided to come up with a solution himself. I believe he was obviously an electric engineer and developed this plug-in primarily at first plug -in. for limiting – Wait, did I say plug-in? Yes, he did. <laughs> I, obviously, a hardware unit. He, he developed this hardware limiter for broadcast to, to control peaks, and then that eventually became the stereo big brother of that. And that was my understanding that – it was to help with vinyl cutting. Now, the stereo started happening, so there became a need for a stereo unit, and it was primarily for, for cutting vinyl and things. It's the way I understand it. Yes. Do you know where he actually started working on them? I think it was at Les Paul's house, if I'm not wrong. Yes. Yeah. On his wow. kitchen table, See, apparently. I Really? I wasn't there. I don't know. I'm just, I'm going by, based on what I know about the unit and the guy. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that, yeah. That's interesting. There's another giant, eh? Like Les Paul. So <laughs> I, I know he had. Well, he was hired by Les Paul to create this item. Yeah. In and a I, sense. I think. And then just to kind of add some additional mm -hmm. mystery, it there is an actual man by the name of Sherman Fairchild. Yep who mm -hmm. did a lot of different things in terms of engineering stuff. And he is the one who licensed it to sell it. What, what coincidence that he would have the last name of the unit, huh? Right. <laughs> I'm going to buy the rights to your unit. And I'm going to slap my name on it. <laughs> yes. And, and if I'm not wrong, I, I believe uh, Mr. Fairchild was the son of the founder of IBM. Uh, a, a man who did work for IBM or something of that nature, yes. And he was also a congressman of some sort. Yeah. Crazy history behind this unit, isn't there? Yeah. So all of that went into the Fairchild, which heralded the unit. I know you've said in other podcasts that you have it on frequently on your mixes, but yes, as, as a plug-in, not as a hardware unit. Yes. And, and the main reason for <laughs> that has to do with cost. You, to get an original Fairchild at this point is going to cost you somewhere in the neighborhood, depending on who you talk to, anywhere between $30,000 to $50,000. And it's kind of like, that's a lot of money to drop on a compressor. So yeah, yeah, I, I don't own the hardware version. I do have the plug-in version and I do use it fairly frequently because it sounds great. 
It's yeah. just the simple reality to it. And the way I would think about this is I could I can kind of compare it to a Vipri. And we're not really talking about the Vipri today, but I do have one of those. And that mm-hmm. has an enormous amount of tubes and wiring inside of it, which is very similar to the Fairchild in terms of the Fairchild's got 20 tubes in it. Yeah. And depending on who you ask, it's going to have either 11 or 14 transformers in it. And it's going to weigh anywhere from 65 to 67 pounds. So that thing is a monster of a unit. <laughs> it's yeah. Gigantic and heavy and lots of tube stuff. Yeah. That's about 30 kilos for your European listeners. Yeah. Yes. So. That, that's a big honking unit. It Absolutely. is. Absolutely. Yeah. Six rack spaces, according to those who actually have them. Right. Yeah. No, I actually did some work where I was an artist in a studio here in Los Angeles at one point, and they actually had one. We weren't using it, but did they it was charge there. extra re- for that or something? <laughs> well, like, well, we can't. In this we case, can't afford it was, that. We're not going to use it. Well, I was. There, we were lucky enough to, to work there because I knew the guy that ran the studio. Gotcha. So, yeah. So it didn't cost me a thing. Ha! But, <laughs> yeah, I remember seeing one and it was like, <gasps> in the in the racks and stuff. And it was like, yeah, there's the, there's the Fairchild. Did it have like so, a unicorn rainbow over it and everything? It did. And as soon as you opened the door, the... <laughs> Angels came out and started came singing. <laughs> yeah. Fantastic. And the soothing voice said, Fairchild. Sweet. Uh, no, I never got to. In all, you know, honestly, you know, joking aside, I, we didn't use it. I'd never listened to it, but they had one. I'm not even sure if it was working at the time because old pieces of gear, just like we've mentioned with, you know, the old um, 1176s and things, that they, they tend to break down. And, and the amount of tubes that are in that thing mm-hmm. to kind of maintain that and having those be up and running there, you know, they 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 do require a fair bit of maintenance. Sure. I understand. Yeah. Probably just one of those keeps Softech in business. <laughs> Quite possibly. Just guessing. Quite possibly. Just guessing. Yeah. So who is like one of the most famous bands that we've heard this used on? Do you know? Well, the band that comes to mind for me is the Beatles. Mm. Because I know that the Abbey Road got one in mid-60s. I want to say like 64. And from then on, I believe it was you know, used on pretty much all Beatles recordings, all the vocals. And I I believe they used it on Ringo's drums as well. Became increasingly popular after that, right? So it kind of blew up. Yeah. yeah, Pretty much everybody's like, oh, the Beatles did it. I want to do it too. So knowing that, Mm -hmm. obviously the first company to really be making them would be Fairchild. Yeah. And that company is no longer. So they're not making them anymore. And those original units, as mentioned earlier, can fetch upwards of 50 grand. Yeah. Which is, you know, a fair chunk of change if you can muster it up. What are some other companies that actually make these things now? There's a company called Mode Machines. Mm-hmm. I believe they make one. Uh, Undertone Audio. They have a model called the Unfair Child. You know, who, so. I think they're... That one I've heard about for sure, and I believe Eric Valentine uses those. Oh, yeah? Yeah, because that, that name rings a bell to me, the unfair child. <laughs> yeah, so huh. Eric Valentine. Yeah, very possible. I mean, he, he just from what I know about him is that he sounds like a guy that would 
have one or possibly sure. two of those. Right? <laughs> or more. Um, yeah. Stam Audio or Stam Audio Engineering, rather, is another company that makes. So there are companies that, that are making these. And, and I mean, they're not cheap. Even from these companies, you're looking to part with a fair bit of money to sure. to pick one up. You know? My guess, but there are companies if, that make them. Yeah, and, and my guess on that as to why it would cost so much has everything to do with the fact that they're probably handmade. It's not the kind yeah. of thing that you can just set on some sort of assembly line with robots to just stick everything in there because you're talking about some complicated wiring setups and everything has to be tested and you're talking about a lot of tubes transformers so that would be why yeah because it's, yeah, it's the cause same you, thing with you, the vipri it's the vipri is it wasn't cheap when it first came out and it wasn't as expensive as say a fairchild but at the same time the number of people that know how to work these things now in terms of fixing them is dwindling fast so it gets expensive to fix <laughs> yeah that's very much sort of like boutique gear and it isn't cheap Right, and then you got to know how to maintain them and and keep them running in pristine order. I sure, and, which is know. why we probably would recommend for those who listen to us, unless you've got a gigantic bank account, you should just go and grab a software version. <laughs> it's yeah, so much so easier who, who, on the bank account, and you still you can get use them. multiples of them. Yes, <laughs> yeah. So, so who makes the the you're a UA guy, right? So well, yeah, so the obviously UA the makes UA one. thing. And as mentioned, I do use it fair amount. So yes, I use the Fairchild a fair amount. And then there's Waves. They make one. There's IK mm -hmm. Multimedia. They make the vintage tube compressor, which is meant to be a representation of that. And your favorite company, which is Slate, has mm -hmm. a sort of Fairchild representation, but it's not exactly a recreation of it and then we've got like nomad factory with their lm amplifier and i'm sure there are other software versions but unfortunately i'm not omnipotent i think with a bunch of these sort of classic pieces of gear obviously people want to have their own version of that yep. um, so you know in the software world and then it becomes the the whole argument with which one is the most accurate and which one does it actually sound like one? And, you know, you can go down that rabbit hole somewhat. And I'm always of the impression or under the opinion, or I have the opinion that when you start comparing those units, mm -hmm. that which one sounds the most like, in this case, the Fairchild, the point almost becomes moot to me because I think if you're getting good results from it, that's really all that matters yes. because all of these old units, they are going to sound different. And, you know, you mentioned here, which we were talking before we started recording here, that you know, people talk about, oh, this is the best one and the one in, in, at uh, Ocean Way, supposedly, right? But but even that, Jack Joseph Puig has one, and I know that's the one. Well, that's that the Waves one, the Waves one. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, oh, does it sound the most uh, – does it really matter? Have you even heard of Fairchild? <laughs> you know? So in just person. get the plug in and, and, and use it. it yes. Most of them will have very, very similar characteristics. So That is know. true. And the other yeah. – so to just kind of cap off on all of this history that now that we're at a point where Fairchild is no longer made, people make replications of them and then there's software instrument versions of these – or not software instrument versions but actual software recreations of some – some units that people think are like the golden master types. 
the real thing about the Fairchild is it, it's kind of part of the triumphant of like the big three triple crown of compressor limiters that people desire to own. And generally speaking, yeah. for the most part, that comes out as the 1176, the LA-2A, and ta-da, the Fairchild. Yeah, I'd agree with that. So That's, you know, in there, as we've talked about in the past, we've talked about both the 1176 and the LA-2A. Yes. How they're, yeah, they're both compressors, but they work very differently. So it's a different tool, again, for what you need to do. And I think the Fairchild is another facet of that. Yes. Right? Where it's not, you're not going to have the same results as an 1176, probably a little closer to maybe an LA-2A, but yet another different flavor, I suppose, of compression. Well, so. one of the things that I would kind of state is that you could get away with using any one of these three as your main compressor limiter unit. And you should be able to do a very yeah. high quality mix. If you're having problems with doing that with any one of them, I'm sorry. <laughs> but well, to have all three obviously gives you the flavorful choice of what you might want to use on a particular song because they do have their own little unique qualities in terms of what they do. But any mixing engineer worth his salt should be able to use any one of those three and be able to get a really amazing product out of it. And it goes yeah, back I'd to knowing your gear. Yeah. And I would take that probably even one step further. And uh -oh. I know we've mentioned this in the past where you should be able to get a really good result with just the stock compressor that comes with yes. your DAW. But we're not talking you know, about the, stock today. No, we're not. But it. I just wanted to make the point that I don't think people should have the thought or, or the, uh, be of the opinion that you need to have these just to be able to put out a good thing. But they are excellent tools to have in your chest once you kind of appreciate the differences between them, right? Then it's, you know, it's a little bit like cooking with salt and pepper. Yeah, you should be able to do that first before you start worrying about cumin, you know? <laughs> so. Nice cooking and reference there. And with that, let's take it into the kitchen for a quick break from a word from our sponsors. And we're back. We're going to dive into the controls and how this unit actually works. So the question is, Chris, kick us off with what we're looking at. Well, if we go sort of signal flow left to right here, we have, as with other compressors, we have an input gain. We have obviously that sets the input gain, as it were, how hot you're feeding the compressor. We then have a threshold that determines obviously the, the location of the knee when compression starts taking place. Yes. And I'm going to skip one here before we come back to it. But then okay. we have sort of like the makeup gain or the output gain, as it's called on the, sure. the Fairchild. Mm -hmm. And then we have normally we are faced with. Let's say on the 1176, we have an attack and release knob. We don't have those at all on an LA-2A, mm -hmm. but on the Fairchild, they're called time constants. Yes. So there's one single knob that controls the attack and release time settings. And this can get a little bit confusing, I think. It's six options, one, two, three, four, five, and six, as one would expect, and they have different values depending on which you are set at. Okay. So that, that will control, you know, 
Do you want to expand on those a little bit for us here before the time constants? Yeah, or should we go into the the detection things here? Well, uh, no. Since we're you're currently on the time constant, let's talk about the time constant. So when you are in the if we number them one, two, three, four, five, and six, if you're in number one, your attack ratio is zero point two milliseconds. So point two microseconds is two milliseconds. Is that correct? That would be how I would Let, read that. Let's just go with 0.2 milliseconds. <laughs> 0.2 Because my, my math is starting to, my head is starting to Your brain's going to gonna explode. explode. But, all right. And the, then the, the bottom line is here with, that we can say throughout all of these is that it had, for the time, now this is before the 1176. Yeah. The purpose of this was that it had a really lightning fast for the time attack time. Especially it, for tubes. Yeah, to catching all those peaks. The biggest difference here is going to come in the release times. Yes. So the um, for set the, number one, you're talking yeah. about 0.2 microseconds, milliseconds, millisecond. whatever that is, with a release time of 0.3 seconds. Yeah. So, so 300 milliseconds. 300 milliseconds. Right? Yeah. And that that is sort of the the fastest setting for the release and attack. Right. Then, then we've got slot number two or step mm -hmm. two, which is the same attack time, the 0.2, with a release now of 0.8, so 800 milliseconds. And yep. then slot three, which is doubling the attack time in terms of how slow it's going to react, I suppose <laughs> this is a good way of saying yeah. it, is becomes 0.4 uh, microseconds. And then the release- no, milliseconds. Milliseconds. 0.4 milliseconds. And the release, which is- <laughs> Two seconds, so it's a yeah. substantially longer release. Yeah. Then we have the step number four, which doubles that even further for the attack, which makes it 0.8. And then the release, which is now five seconds long. And then yeah. step five, which gets into kind of an automated program-dependent kind of thing. It reduces the attack again back to 0.4. Mm -hmm. And the release is now two seconds on peak material but 10 seconds long on multiple peaks. So if suddenly a whole bunch of stuff starts to happen, all of a sudden the thing just really slows down on how it's releasing things. And then on step six is also another program dependent type of setting where it gets back to the 0.2 on the attack and the release becomes the 0.3, 300 milliseconds on the peaks, but retains that 10 second type of, thing on the multiple for, for, yeah. hits that happen quickly. Yeah. So and, it's it's very that, interesting to kind but of But the last one also yes. has a program dependent thing where the release time is 25 seconds. Mm. That's a long That's time. That's a long release time. Yes. Yeah. So now what they were talking so. about initially when they made these units, mm -hmm. they were talking about one and two. Now they're paint, painted with broad strokes here, of course, but but it is food for thought because I I think it paints a pretty good picture. Where step one or time constant one and two were sort of ideal for pop music and, yep. and things of that nature. Where three and four with the longer release times were a little bit better suited for classical music, that type of thing. You you would get less of an effect, I suppose, Sure. Uh, with, with a longer release. Now, step five and six, 
I would say just experiment <laughs> and see where you're at. Uh, now, by all accounts, when people that, that encounter these actual hardware units, they would be firmly planted in essentially position one as they're kind of using it for, for general use. So I think for people that are diving into these in the software world, start with one and two and kind of experiment from there. But that would probably give you a good starting point, no matter what you're kind of feeding through it, unless you're doing really esoteric stuff. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I would agree with it. And a lot of my use actually is on step one, step two. Occasionally, yeah. I use five or six, but it's not very often. It's usually one or two. When have you used, just out of curiosity, when have you used like five or six? Because I have reverbs. I'm like, yeah. Generally speaking, oh, on reverbs, okay. I tend to use the, the longer program-dependent things to kind of get a reverb to sit differently in a mix. That's generally where I've done it. That doesn't mean that it's the right or the wrong thing. It's just where I've noticed it's like, hey, you know, actually that feels pretty good on that reverb like that. So so you're talking on your reverb return now yes. when you kind of go, yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. And how much have you, oh, I'm, I know I'm kind of putting you on the spot here, but how much are you generally looking at compressing at that point? on the reverb. I know it's program dependent, but but to, to get that to hold three to five dB. Yeah. Yeah. Not a not a ton, but not it's also not a, not little. That's kind of a medium amount, I think, three to five dB. Depending yeah. on your theory. You know, some people might think that's heavy handed, but to me twenty would be super heavy handed. <laughs> so Yeah. Okay, that's interesting. That because that, you're a little bit more of a user the, of the Fairchild style compression than I am, mm -hmm. so I will be learning some things here along with hopefully some other people. <laughs> yeah, well, but, generally, uh, so to to think about where I'm using the settings, especially a lot of things being one and two, instruments is where I tend to use one almost exclusively mm -hmm. on instruments, and especially drums. Drums will almost always be on one for me. Are you talking drum buses now or are you talking like individual Either or. Shells? Sometimes I've done the Fairchild individually and sometimes I've done it on the bus. So it's either or. And more often than not, it's always on set one for drums. For vocals, mm -hmm. I tend to go with the two. Yeah, a little longer release A little time. bit longer on yeah. the release so it's not quite so obvious, so to speak. Yeah. And, and so. But wait, you, you said something almost in passing there that mm. I think is really important because you said it's it's less obvious. Mm -hmm. And that was sort of the strength of the Fairchild, wasn't it? That you could control these peaks and you wouldn't get any sort of artifacts yes. from that, from the, from the actual compression, which sounds kind of odd when you're talking about a unit that has like 20 tubes <laughs> in it, <laughs> <Yes>. right? <laughs> but, but from the compression standpoint, that it was relatively transparent, certainly for the time. Transparent to an extent. There's a whole separate thing to the unit that we haven't discussed yet, and that is the headroom knob. Yeah. And the headroom knob is an entirely different adjustment that you can make use of. And the yeah. way it gets used is this. You have your input setting that we've already kind of talked about. There's the input gain. But the headroom mm -hmm. knob allows you for adjusting the internal operating level of the Fairchild. And hopefully your plugin has that ability as well as the original hardware unit had. What it gives you the ability to do is fine-tune the input-output distortion 
and operate the unit at a different signal level than the actual input gain. So you can actually set your input gain to be properly staged, and then you can use the headroom control to dial in the amount of color, distortion, whatever you want to call it, of how that's going to hit the compressor separately from the input channel. Mm. And some people will actually use the unit just to run the mix through without using yeah. it as a compressor. So yep. you do that by setting your input gain to where you want it, your output gain to where it needs to be so that you're not changing the volume dramatically. And then you use the headroom knob to control how much color you're getting out of it without actually causing it to compress anything. Yeah. And you're using it just for its transformer to juju. Yeah. <laughs> this is essentially yeah. what it is. So yeah, neither of the software versions I have have that functionality. But I know I've mentioned it in the past. I do that frequently on my two bus. I have the Slate version, which I think is a cross between Fairchild and a Manly. Okay. Because it's not a one-on-one -on -one right. Fairchild thing. But that adds a certain color that most of the time is pleasing. Sometimes it actually gets to be a little bit too much. But it is an interesting thing. And had somebody told me that, you know, You'd go up 10 years ago, maybe. You bought the Apollo system instead? <laughs> no, no, no. But if somebody had told me, not, you know, just leave it on in it without doing anything, I thought them, you're, you're, you're crazy, man. You're talking about. That's crazy. Yeah, you're crazy. Crazy but, talk. But some of these plugins actually do impart a sound. Yes. Uh, because if they're emulated well enough or close enough, I should say, to the original units where well, you could do that. I know that's something that you've done with, yeah. with the Manleys and things as well. Yeah, I, I use, on my mastering setup, I do use the Manly Variable MU, not to do any compression, but just to run the signal through it for yeah. the esoteric juju that it throws down on the signal. So, yeah, yes, it's, and, and, it's and interesting. I've, yeah. I've generally thought of it just as a mastering concept. I've never really thought about it using it as a two-bus thing. But today my mind is expanded and I'm going to try it on a future mix. <laughs> There you so go. Run it through a Fairchild for the mix and then run it through a Manly for the master just to see what kind of juju happens there. So Oh, that might be too much juju. It might be. <laughs> might be overdone on the juju. Anyway, so the headroom knob, getting back to that, is just the ability to fine-tune the internal operating level. And apparently the UA plugin does that. I'm not sure you say the slate doesn't do that. I don't know if the no. Waves version does it because I don't technically own that. The, so I don't the know. The Waves version does not have okay. that functionality, no. So it sounds like UA is kind of right in saying that theirs is the most accurate representation of it then. <laughs> well, that's what the slogan says, right? So Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, yeah. sir. Anyway, there's additional. But, but that is, okay, go ahead. No, I was, but I think that's, I was unaware of that functionality up until very recently. And I think it's an interesting concept because it's almost in a hardware form of not necessarily a mix knob as mm -hmm. in parallel compression, but it is a color knob yes. of sorts, mm -hmm. you know. So uh, I know that for me, when I, I mentioned the, the Slate, very mu, um, 
bus compressor there that I frequently use. I, you can use that to, in a similar sense, use the mix knob to add more or less of that that vibe that it's kind of imparting. So sure. it, it's a diff, it's an interesting thing. I mean, we're talking details here, but yes. we're pretty big on details, you and I sometimes. So yeah, and there's another there detail yeah. knob in the Fairchild. Yeah. That appears in the UA version of the plugin that does appear on the hardware unit as well. But I, I'm guessing it probably doesn't really appear on any of the other plugin representations. That's the bias knob. And the bias knob is essentially what you get when you're working with a lot of tube things. You have to control the bias. And with the way it's normally set, you just leave it alone. Don't touch the darn thing because <laughs> you can yeah. really, really alter the characteristics of how tubes will react to certain things by using the bias knob. And as much as I like to be super knowledgeable about it and super esoteric about certain settings, that's one knob I don't touch. And the main reason has to do with having worked with my own Vipri having to set the biasing, having replaced some tubes in the darn thing. I refuse to deal with the knob once the bias is set and correct. Don't touch it again. <laughs> so that's why I don't touch right. it. <laughs> but there are another set of settings that happen with the 670, the stereo version. And those settings have to do with linking the left and right channels together so that they operate in conjunction with each other, or they can operate mono-mono. Dual yeah. mono. And they have what is known as the lateral and vertical adjustments. And that's where some things get really kind of crazy in terms of what the hell do they mean about that? Yeah, that can get pretty esoteric, I think, or, or, or at least difficult. And I, I try to understand this as I move on. And sometimes it makes sense and sometimes it doesn't. But from my understanding is that it has pretty much everything to do with the detection of how it detects the audio and applies compression. Yes. Am I completely off base with that? No, you're actually pretty close to being on base. And if we were to take the four, well, relatively the four different settings, you have the stereo linked version of everything being linked together, mm -hmm. which means that you've got your left and right controls, but the only controls that tend to matter at that point when they're linked is the left controls because they're controlling the amount of input, the amount of threshold, the amount of your time constants and all that kind of stuff. If you have the lateral vertical going in that sense, it takes the input from the left and right and it also takes a combined value of what they both represent together, which some people might call the mid. So you'd have your mids and your sides, but it's not really mid side in regards to like the way you'd treat it with EQ. You have yeah, this and it doesn't. It, yeah, I think it's important to, to just reiterate there that it doesn't split out a mid and side output from Correct. it has everything to do with the detection right yeah. so it has everything to do with the detection of the uh, how it's going to react to the compression so what i mean by that is if you have a signal that is left right and you have let's say your drum kit if you're throwing it on your drum kit as the bus compressor and you have like your hi-hat primarily on your left side and you have a crash that's primarily on the right and you have your kick and your snare that's primarily up the center and you set this for the lateral vertical situation, 
it means that it will detect whatever a louder signal is in the center and use that to compress more, but it's compressing both sides equally. So if a loud sound suddenly happens really hard in the left, but isn't happening hard in the middle, it's not going to compress both signals as hard as it would if they was formed in the center, so to speak. Mm -hmm. When you have that section split so that they're working individually, it works slightly different because if it's equal into both, obviously it's going to represent them a little bit more equally, but wherever it comes a little heavier on the side, it's going to compress that side harder than it will the other side. Does that make sense? Yeah, I understand what, what you're going for. The, what we're trying to, it, it, it is a really hairy concept, but just understand that it is not a true sort of mid-side thing in the original units. It just has to do with the detection. So I think the drum kit thing that you brought up there, I think, is a good example where, let's say, we traditionally have kick and snare in the middle and other pieces off to the side to varying degrees. A kick and snare hit will affect the compression more than something that would be off pan to the side. Yes. So there you go. Easy as pie. There you go. It wasn't so hard. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it, because I've heard other people describing it as a pure mid-side thing, but that's that's not true. That's not how that works. It doesn't split. It, it, it reacts to it differently, but it doesn't split the signal. No right. Way. It it's not technically splitting the, the signal. So yeah. It's just yeah. the way it's detecting what's happening. And if it's centered, it's considered heavier focused. So you want to treat the signal a little harder yeah. in terms of the compression. Whereas if it's off to the side, yes, if it's the same volume level, it seems like it should compress the same amount, but it doesn't. It compresses less. And apparently... Mm -hmm. From my understanding, this was developed strictly for the way they used lathes to cut vinyl, mm -hmm. which allowed them to get a louder volume out of the vinyl with a narrower cut so you could get more playing time on your vinyl by using yeah. this device. You get this right. louder volume and more playtime out of your vinyl cut using the 670 Fairchild. Right, because that, that's something that we've, we've touched on in, in other episodes here, but that is obviously one of the limitations of vinyl. There's only so much. There's only so much you can cut out of that it. shit before it dissipates. Breaks. <laughs> it breaks. And, yeah, it doesn't sound good. Yeah, yeah. So you mentioned drums. You mentioned reverb returns. Yes. What other things do you like to use a Fairchild on? I've used it on vocals. As I mentioned, like I use setting two, mm -hmm. the time constant two for yeah. vocals quite frequently. Mm -hmm. Those are the main areas where I've used the Fairchild. Very rarely have I used it on the master bus, but after today and expanding my mind a little bit, I probably will try it a little bit more often going forward. Cool. 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 Yeah, I'm not a heavy Fairchild user, but I will, just as when we talked Poltec, I'm like, hmm, I kind of want to <laughs> experiment with this a little bit more because, yes. again, just another tool. So I, I will try out th some things there as well. Just try to keep in mind for myself here and everybody else, I suppose, is that it would probably be less of an effect compressor, shall we say? Like you can get like some really 
nasty sounds out of an 1176 because you have that super fast release and super fast attack as well. You're not going to get a Fairchild to pump, for example. Well, like you can, it. but it's it's not as desired. And that's why they make the, the I want to say the sidechain filter, which is probably the best way to say it, where you can erase the frequency to where your low end doesn't affect it as hard to prevent the pumping. Mm, okay. Yeah, but but that's a functionality that I suppose is not available on that may not be on the hardware thing as well. That actually might actually just be the right. But I think that UA. was is only also on certain units because I have my if they're modified my Puig child in mm -hmm. front of me right now, and that is not unless I'm missing an Easter egg somewhere. But that, that is not <laughs> um, possible on the waves, and I do believe it's part of the slate. Yeah, there's a high pass filter, so you could do that for the detection. Again, that is not strictly a one-to-one -one Fairchild thing as well. But that is, of course, you could put, well, no, actually you couldn't. I was about to say something really idiotic, but no. Um, <laughs> I'm going to spare myself the embarrassment and not do that. <laughs> All right. So anything else, Jody, on the Fairchild that you would like to bring up? No. Okay. No, but it's a, it's a cool unit. I'm going to try to use it a little bit more and experiment with it. Uh, I do like to use the slate one, as I mentioned, again and again on my two bus mm -hmm. for that color, not as the compressor. And it sounds like you might try the same thing with this, but uh, I might explore some vocal things with it as well. And maybe that reverb return thing, that sounds pretty interesting yeah. too. It's, so it's good for that. Try that. And with cool. that, let's wrap things up. We're going to bump on over into Friday Fines. And as always, we kick it off with Chris. Chris, what did you find this week? Well, we unfortunately lost a giant yes, this we week. Did. Al, Al Schmidt passed away at the age of 91. And what a career. But that that's not that's an my understatement find. right there. That. Yeah, yeah. Um, but because of that, mixing with the masters have a, I don't want to use the word promo because that sounds kind of hard and callous, but they have a thing this week where Al Schmidt's workshops that he had done on there are free for everybody until the end of the week. Well, you better so get on top you, of it because you only have like a day and a half to go. <laughs> yep. So get on that, check it out. There should be a wealth of knowledge in those. So that is my... Friday find for this week. What about you, Jody? What do you what did you discover for us? Uh, my my Friday find is not related to Al Schmidt. However, I had the fortune of meeting the man and having a Ooh. short conversation with him, which is where I get the story about Steve Lukather because he was also at the same uh, event, and that's uh -huh. where I heard the story. But yeah, that's it's it's kind of it was disturbing news to wake up and see that headline of Al Schmidt pass away. Anyway, yeah. My Friday find this week is from Baby Audio, mm -hmm. and it is a plugin that is similar-esque in nature to the Oak sound of Soothe, mm -hmm. and also I would relate it to the similarity of the Golfoss EQ, in that it is it's a plugin that 
will do real-time analyzation of your audio to improve clarity and smoothness across whatever instrument you put it on or whatever bus you put it on. So hmm. as they state, it's an alternative EQ compressor resonance suppression type thing that happens in real time in one unified workflow. And that's, that's a very similar. <laughs> yeah, it's a big mouthful. And it's very similar to the concept of how the Soothe plugin works. And it's very similar in concept to the auto EQing that happens with the Goldfoss. So it kind of mixes the concept of both of those into one. So if you're finding yourself mixing with both the Goldfoss and the Soothe on the same thing, maybe you want to get into the Baby Audio's Smooth Operator, which I don't think I mentioned before. So their plugin is called the Smooth Operator. And if you hop on it before the end of this month, when this podcast actually originally aired, you can get it for 40% off. So instead of its normal expensive nature, it's now 39 bucks to the end of the month. So jump on that. Very cool. Yes. So with that, while we still have your attention, I would like to request that you guys go to our website and leave us a review at insidetherecordingstudio.com or go to insidetherecordingstudio.com and just sign up for the email list. You'll get weekly reminders about our Tuesday tips and our episodes that have just released. So we make sure that you stay up on everything that Chris and I are chatting about and trying to impart knowledge to you with. In addition to that, if you're on the email list, you're automatically signed up for any kind of giveaway that we're giving away as an automatic entry. If you send us an email to goldstar, G-O-L-D-S-T-A-R, at insidetherecordingstudio.com with the word Fairchild, you'll get something cool back in your inbox. And if you send it with, like, say, a $20 donation from PayPal, you'll get something even cooler back. (laughs) So, yeah. And if you have a topic of suggestion that you would like Chris and I to talk about on a future episode, do contact us. From the contact form on our website, and we'll put it into rotation for a future episode. And with that, I will say, see you next week, Chris and everyone. See you, Jody. Have a good day, buddy. <laughs> <laughs>